Hello and Huanying Zai delving into Asian Psyches, the podcast in which we investigate the pasts, presence and futures of psychology in the Indian Pacific. My name is Robin Weber and today I'm joined by Hu Chuanpeng from China. So for this episode, I am delighted to have Professor Hu with me. He is a psychology professor at Nanjing Normal University and leading the Meta Self Lab at the institution's School of Psychology. After completing his PhD at Tsinghua University in Beijing, he pursued his postdoc at the Neuroimaging Center at Johannes Gutenberg University in Germany. He has done research in neuro and cognitive psychology in which we investigate the cognition of the self and human perception using approaches in meta-science, modeling, and measuring. He is also among the founding members of the Chinese Open Science Network, which promotes open science practices such as open access, transparency, and reproducibility in the Chinese research community. Now you see we have lots of ground to cover in this episode, and I suggest we delve straight in. And with that, I want to welcome our today's guest, Hu Chuanpeng. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Robin. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here to share some viewpoints on the psychology research in China. Right. I'm looking forward to hearing from those. Now, for the start of each episode, I usually like to have a look back and see how psychology emerged in my guests' countries. And in the case of China, I think it's a very interesting one as it's one of those in which psychology actually predates the modern state and back when psychology emerged in China the place where you're in Nanjing was actually still the capital so for a starter maybe you can uh, give us an idea of when psychology emerged in China and in what environment perhaps you can also use your university as an example for that yeah, sure. I, I think so. In China, we have a course, we have a lecture called History of Psychology. So usually it will introduce the history of how psychology is developed in China. Uh, we have like pre-psychological science and after psychological science. So pre-psychological science, usually we use the first psychology laboratory established in China as a time point to separate these two periods. Before that, as invest, we have like some ideas about psychology. But after that, we start into like modern psychology. So the first psychological lab was established in 1917 in Peking University. But the first department of psychology actually was established in, at that time, I think it was called Nanjing Advanced uh, Normal College because it was a college for, for teachers. And the first psychology department was established there. And of course, it was the precedence of our university, Nanjing Normal University. Then in 1921, Chinese Psychology Society was established. And then another important time point was 1951. So the Institute of Psychology at the Chinese Academy of Science was found and started to doing research in psychology. But then comes to the revocalization of Chinese higher education. Maybe you have had that before. So basically, it's the central government decided to revocalize all the universities and the colleges. 
so that they specifically focus on some area. For example, the university I got my PhD degree, Tsinghua University, was then focused on engineering and science. So at that time, I think most departments of psychology was just cancelled, and the faculties of the psychology department goes to department of education or sociology or anthropology. So for a long time, there was no department of psychology at all. And then because most education department was reorganized to a teachers' school. Or we call it normal university in in China because it was school for training teachers, but then they become universities and they keep normal in their names. So we have a lot of normal universities in China. So what these universities was originally for training teachers, and Nanjing Normal University, my university, is one of them. So the department then、uh, most of the faculty of psychology department was moved to Department of Education.、Uh, I think. Maybe from eighties, then the psychology start to, just as all the other areas, we we start to open up and to develop、uh, economy, and、uh, so the science also start to grow again. And then the faculties who originally studied psychology, but、uh, at that time they was in department education, start to reestablish the department psychology. For example, uh, uh, in our university, we have independent school of psychology only after two thousand twelve. So I think after 2000,、uh, psychology is officially recognized by the central government as an independent discipline. So we have departments, but not all university have departments, of course. I think maybe around 2010, as the economy of the nation grows, people become increasingly concerned about mental health, and the psychology become more recognized by society. So recently, I think because maybe two topics are highly、uh, concerned by the society and、uh, by the government as well. One is the brain science, because there are a lot of brain projects among different countries, and、uh, China also has its own brain projects. And the other is mental health. So I think a lot of、um, resources was、uh, invested in the development of psychology. Yeah. Mm-hmm, yeah, thank you for that introduction. I think that lays it out in a broad kind of view. And one thing I noticed that you have mentioned the reintroduction of psychology.、Mm-hmm. Perhaps you can also、yeah. um, describe a little bit what happened in between and how it came to that. Well, I, I think at that time, because the whole country is undergoing some. So, for example, the Cultural Revolution and some other political events. So, I think maybe most research was uh, just uh, stopped. So, was psychology. All、ah, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So then, after that time, when the country started to open up again, psychology became a, a field that uptake in in research interest again.、Hmm? Yeah, I think it's relatively slow because、uh, there's no department of psychology at all at that time. At the very beginning, like in the eighties. What people, what researchers are in the department of education? Only maybe around two thousand psychology started to really、uh, become an independent discipline recognized by the central government. I see. So before that is kind of a subfield of education or sociology. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure it takes time to build a whole department and field of research. And psychology is also one of these very broad. 
areas which has many different interests and fields. So one of them you mentioned is uh, the brain science and very prominent in that is the cognitive psychology in which you're also active in. And often when I describe this to people unfamiliar with it, it's a bit of a blocky term. So maybe mm-hmm. as an expert, you can help us unpack uh, what do you mean by cognition and where does psychology play its role in its research? Cognitive psychology, as you just said, is a subfield of psychology. So it study how human brain as a information processor. So when we say something, when we hear something, right? In cognitive psychology, we will take the metaphor of a computer. You give us the computer some input, then it will process it and give some output. And uh, for cognitive psychology, when we study human, we, we view the sensory input as the information that flows into our brain. And then how the brain process this information and uh, then give us output. For example, we see a sentence as a response or we uh, take some action. The purpose of cognitive psychology is to unpack well, how to describe this process, how to reconstruct this process. Can we model this process? Is there some universal phenomenon or effect or pattern when we process some information? Of course, each field is quite active. For example, a lot of researchers studying vision. So how we process the information that perceived by our eyes and what's their auditory and many others. Of course, we have a low level like a sensory information processing. Then we have a higher level, for example, how we decide, make a decision like economic decision or social decision or moral judgment, what kind of uh, cognitive process or how these kind of decisions are made uh, from input to output. Of course, as a field, we still have a lot to learn. We have a lot to investigate, but we try to use the metaphor from computer science. So view human as information processor, and we can unpack the underlying processes. And then when we have brain images, we have a non-invasive technique to image in the brain, what is happening in the brain, then cognitive psychology naturally combined with these kind of neuroimaging methods. So for example, functional magnetic resonance imaging or fMRI. So we can not only using experimental design to infer the underlying processes, but we can also scan in people's brain when they are making some decision, what they are finishing some task. So we can see what was happening when people doing something in their brain. And we can make a link between the cognitive task or the task they are doing and the brain regions is activated. So these two combined as a cognitive neuroscience, which is uh, part of the brain science, I think. Yeah, I think that's really great. And I love the uh, metaphor you've made uh, with the computer, because the literal translation for the Chinese word for computer is just electric brain, right? (laughs) Yeah, 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 exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So I appreciate how you lay out how cognitive research is practically done, and especially also with time and the history that it took to evolve. We can also see how it became more and more technically with brain scans, etc. which back in the early days when, let's say, the psychology was first reintroduced, they must have been at a very different stage. So I wonder where does cognition uh, stand today as it seems to me this field has been very prominent in China as a field of research. Maybe you can elaborate on how it came to that and how it is practiced today 
for example, you could also use an example of your own work, how you utilize these measures. Yeah, sure. Uh, so as I just mentioned, uh, psychology in China was initially like somehow was grown up uh, from the department of education. So of course, developmental and educational psychology is still, I think, the field that uh, most researchers are, are engaged in. But I think around 2000, uh, maybe a bit later, um, people starting to introduce cognitive psychology into, into China. So I think at that time, the early researchers started to introduce the idea of uh, experimental psychology and using the like, well-designed experiment to somehow review some uh, cognitive mechanism of human brain. As EEG, so electroencephalogram, electricity, we can record it from the, our scope, and uh, as well as fMRI, as just mentioned, and other non-invasive techniques appeared. Uh, cognitive neuroscience become really uh, popular because for the first time in the human history, we can see the activity of brain. And so it was very exciting at that time. And I think the whole, the scientists around the world are, were are very excited. So researchers in China also started to use this technique to study human brain. So now in cognitive psychologists, most people, they somehow using some uh, brain imaging techniques. For university, like the tier one research a university, elite universities, they have uh, enough resources. So they many of them have uh, fMRI for research purpose. So most of research there, they will use uh, combined fMRI and cognitive and, and experimental psychology to study the brain correlates. For other universities, like our university, we also have like EEG technique, where most people will somehow combine them. So if you do not use this kind of technique, I think maybe uh, you are disadvantaged, basically. So few people, when they're writing the grant, they, they don't mention the uh, brain imaging technique. They're just saying that I am going to behave experiment. I think most comments would be, this is not enough. So I think now cognitive neuroscience will at least combination between brain imaging technique and the behavior experiment dominant cognitive psychology. I think another tradition in cognitive science is that we use computation modeling like the year before 2015, um, most people still using um, neuroimaging, people around the world, and the very few people using cognitive models. Now they start to combine cognitive models with uh, neuroimaging techniques. But actually, uh, cognitive modeling was really an old one. It was an old method in cognitive science and the cognitive psychology. Yeah, so in the cognitive psychology in China, most people will use combined experiments with brain image techniques. Without it, basically, it would be very hard for you to get some funding. That, that's my observation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. I can imagine it to be a very competitive field. You mentioned, as I broadly went over in the introduction, this 3M model with different approaches to be combined. Yeah. And and as you've also briefly touched on just now, um, psychology is a field uh, under challenge. Maybe you can expand on which obstacles in research you are trying to address with your work and how research in psychology can be improved. Sure. It will go back to my training, actually. When I was doing my master's degree, I replicated one famous experiment published in science, basically, which means if you are holding a heavy thing, because you have some sense of physical weight, right? So when you're making a social judgment at the same time, you will give more weight to that thing, to that topic. 
And so basically, the idea is very fancy, right? Saying that, uh, saying that physical failing can affect our social judgment. Firstly, I try to do a new experiment based on this idea. I want to check whether the metaphor of heavy can also transfer to punishment. But then I didn't find anything. So whether or not participants hold a heavy or light thing, the judgment was almost the same. So I think it's really weird. So I tried to replicate the original study and I replicate it and I get nothing. So no difference between the groups who are holding heavier or night writing boards. So then I contacted the original author. I, I write an email to the first author and then to the corresponding author. No one responded to me. It really uh, gave me a feeling that this topic or people who are doing research related to this topic is unreliable. So then I kept track on how the field doing this kind of field replications. And then there are several, I think, widely spread events on, on the social media. So basically, uh, a social psychologist from Cornell University, they found that the participant can predict the future. That paper was published in a journal of top tier journal in our field, and it invoked a lot of debate on the social media. And then comes to the replication, the field replication of elderly priming experiment. Maybe you have heard of that, right? So a participant who was presented some elderly related words and uh, unconsciously they were primed about the concept of old. So when they're working out in the laboratory, their speed is slower as compared to work in the experiment. Researchers from Cambridge and Belgium, they replicated study and didn't find any priming effect. They published paper and then the original author was really angry and write a very critical blog. So that also evoked a lot of discussion among the social media because I just have a field replication. So I think, okay, seems that uh, something goes wrong. So then comes to a lot of discussion on social media and then comes to the replication crisis, right? So people realize that a lot of published papers in psychology cannot be replicated. So I think at the end of 2011, Brian Nosek and many other researchers, they started a group and they tried to replicate 100 studies in psychology. And so they spent years to do that. I think in 2015, they published that paper in Science. So I think the, the title of that paper is Reproducibility of Psychology. So that time, people really start to pay attention to it. I mean, researchers who originally do not really think is a problem, they started to take it seriously. I think I concerned about this because I, I personally have a two failure. I just described one. The other is uh, when I was studying my PhD training, I trying to study whether or not people have like a preference to their own face. So usually people will process their own face like at a faster pace. So when we present a face or a long face object on the screen and we ask you to uh, discriminate is a face or not. If the face was your own face, you will like respond faster and usually more accurately. So we call it self-face advantage or self-face effect. During my PhD, I want to investigate whether or not this phenomenon also exists when the face was presented unconsciously. So we're presenting the stimuli to you, but you cannot aware of it because we're using other stimuli to like mask it. In cognitive psychology, we have several techniques to do so. I conducted a series of pilot study and uh, 
I'm sure that uh, I can replicate some well-established effect in the field. For example, I present the face using some device so that I can present one face to your one eye. And then I present a very dynamic, high contrast, colorful stimuli. So a dynamic keep changing another stimuli to your next eye. So basically at the first, you cannot see the face presented in, in this eye, but still, the sensory information is still inputting, right? So you keep seeing it, but I didn't find the self face advantage. So when you presented self face or other face, they appeared to your awareness almost the same speed. But previously there was a study saying that they found self face advantage using this kind of technique. So I have a lot, I have two field study and I concerned about the field. So I started to read a lot of blogs about how people doing research. And then I found that there was a lot of problem in the field. For example, p-hacking, maybe you had it now, which means that you torture the data until it to be significant. And uh, we also have a lot of other questions. For example, you have a hypothesis A, but after you conduct your experiment, you found a different pattern. And then when you're writing the paper, you write in the induction that I have uh, predicted B and I conduct the experiment and I get the uh, hypothesis confirmed. So you actually hypothesize after you examine the data. And we also have other problems, for example, publication bias. So only the positive or the significant results was published. And uh, we never share our data and we never share our code. And uh, all these problems really uh, made me feel that we didn't do things right. At that time, um, I also have the chance to go to, as an exchange student to Oxford. At that time, I happened to attend a conference. So they have a discussion about reproducibility and open science. So I heard that science is about your method and the question you're asking, not about the results you get positive or negative. So I was really like, like converted to a strong supporter to open science. I think that's the right way to do science. Another yeah. concern I have as an early researcher. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think I, 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 I just wanted to jump in here, right? Sure. So I can very well understand here how with all these experiences you have made as a young researcher has also led you to action. And one of those that I yep. previously mentioned is the Chinese Open Science Network, which, if I'm informed correctly, you've also started at your time at Tsinghua. And I'm just wondering, mm. how did you lay out that project and how did it grow to what it become to be now? Yeah, I think that's exactly what I'm going to tell you. <laughs> Thank you for asking. So. After I getting back from UK, I feel that the international community of psychology is changing. Some journals, they are taking actions. For example, they started to ask authors to open data during pre-registration. And also they ask, you have to justify your synthesize. But all this kind of stuff, all this, this kind of legal standard, a long head from our own training in China. So I feel that actually a crisis for, like, it's like a career development crisis. Because we as a early career researcher, we, we hope to be engaged in the psychological science on like globally instead of just in China, right? But if we are trained in a way that was abandoned by the international community, then our future will be very difficult. So I'm worried not only about myself, but our generation. So I think it's very important to let graduate students know what was happening, what is the problem in our practice, in our, in our way of doing science. The other is what can change was happening around the world. So 
after um, I get him back, I start to write a Chinese article to introduce the problem. So to give an overview of the replication crisis and the reform, but it's a big challenge if you are not trained with this kind of new technique and knowledge and all. So I write a Chinese article and I also start to organize workshop. And I think at that year after, because I back from UK at August, and then we have a newer conference for the Chinese Psychology Society. So I applied for a pre-conference workshop about reproducibility and open science. At that time, I was a graduate student. I'm not sure whether I'm the first graduate student applying for organizing a workshop. Previously, I think most of workshops are organized by professors, but I tried because I think it's so important. And then actually, I I was somehow get approved. So people allow me to go there and、uh, hold a workshop. And I go to Xi'an, so in west north city in China. And then I have、uh, the first workshop. I think more than 150 people. Most of them are students, PhD students or master students.、Uh, they attended this workshop. And so、uh, to keep somehow to keep this community growing, well, the first idea is that after workshop, how did these people who interested in open science communicate with each other? So. We started WeChat group, you know, the social media we are using in China. We started a WeChat group. We share information about open science and reproducibility. And、uh, also before the workshop, I started a WeChat official account. It's like a blog. You can publish some articles so that people can read and can share with each other. That account was created firstly to post announcements of the workshop. But after the workshop, we think it's still useful, so we post some translations on that. For example, translation of the blogs in English or some events、uh, happening in international community. So then the subscribers of these accounts keep growing, and then people start to join me, saying that okay, Trumpon, you 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 are doing great thing, but the editing, the typesetting of your blog is really ugly. Maybe I can help. <laughs> so they they join us, they they join me, and they start to do more things. And also, for example, when we're trying some to to translate something, usually I cannot do it just by my own. So usually I will post an recruitment on that WeChat account. People will just email me and saying that okay, I I will help you to translate this. So slowly the community will keep growing, and then it comes to 2019, the COVID. So at that time, all of us、um, have to keep the social distance, and most of us、uh, stay at home. So we think that maybe we can do something. So we start to organize、uh, online talks, and because of the online talk, more early career researchers joined me. Most of them are postdocs, so they started to invite speakers, organize the talk. Yeah. Before that, we we have a journal club, so we read papers related to reproducibility and new methods, and we call it open minds. So because I think this kind of article is really broaden the horizon of students, so we call it open minds. We hope that people are open minded, and also this will make their minds like、uh, more open. <laughs> yeah. So we we have this kind of online events. So I think then Chinese-speaking researchers in psychology and in cognitive neuroscience starting to know us because we have translated a lot of very helpful blogs. We also、uh, translated some sources. For example, I think one of the earliest blog we are translating is about open database for face stimuli. You know, in psychology, we a large group of people are studying how human process human face, so they need this kind of stimuli. And I think that some researcher they combine all these kind of resources. So we translate it into Chinese, and it's very popular because 
many graduate students they need that for their training. And um, yeah, then we started to also telling international colleagues what we are doing. We have our social media, and we're telling people that okay, China, uh, most Chinese researchers don't know that, but still we are trying to promote the idea of open science. Then we、we'll、find that uh, uh, international speakers are really helpful, are really su- supportive. They agree to give talk、uh, without only like because we 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 cannot offer honorary to to our speakers. So then the community started growing. Yeah,、mm-hmm. oh, what a wonderful organization. That is that you have built with your colleagues, and for <laughs> and for the last few minutes, I always like to have a brief outlook on the future and where work and research might be going. So, in light of the of your open science、uh, network, how do you aim to、uh, continue in your engagement in this area? Yeah, I, I think for the open science network,、uh, we are trying to recruit new members. So that we have maybe next generation leadership instead of、uh, we are doing all the things all the time because many of us now become faculty members and、uh, our time become limited for the network. Yeah, but but I think because、uh, many many graduate students or postdoc they they knew that we are doing a what we are doing is for for big good or the, for the common goods of the community. So many of them also willing to join us. As for my own research, I think、uh, I also trying to find a way to balance the time I invested in promoting open science and the time for doing、uh, substantive research. So currently, in other country, I think most country in 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 the world still they have an incentive system that reward the substantive research instead of open science or meta research. If you are in in department of psychology, well. But of course, if you are in department of library or science of science, maybe、uh, they have a different criteria. But I am in <laughs> the school of psychology, so for example, when I applying grants, maybe many of my publications may cannot be、uh, put in the reference list because they are not substantive research topic. So I try to balance the two. So recently, my my research or starting to converge. I I trying to use the method I have learned from open science and、uh, reproducibility to my own research. So how people process their self-related information. So recently, I tried to build database. So for for this topic,、uh, we actually we starting to create some meta research. So we connect. What papers related to, for example, self-referential task, and、uh, we're not conducting meta-analysis, but we just extract all the data from these papers and put them together as a database, so that people can somehow reuse it. Our group also will benefit from this database, of course. I was trying to use like cognitive modeling, as I just mentioned.、Uh, even I. I start to know modeling、uh, very late, but I think this is a very amazing、uh, way to make our hypothesis more concrete and、um, and forceable instead of just a very vague verbal theory. So I'm trying to apply modeling in my own research as well. I'm also trying to、um, maybe improve the measurements as well. As you have mentioned, I also emphasize measurements in the research approach I'm employing because.、Um, In 2018, when I attended one conference, so SIPS, which is、um, Society for the Improvement of Psychological Science, one session is about how what a mess our current measurement is. 
because we actually have measurement with the same lane, but they are measuring different things. And we also have a measurement with different names, but they are measuring the same thing. So I trying to figure out how we can like improve the measurement of uh, self-related information processing. Yeah, but of course, these are actually at a very early stage because I, I started to combine or combine these two just maybe two or three years ago. Still many projects are going on and um, I'm still uh, looking forward to the, the results, how it goes. Mm. Yeah, it seems there is still a whole lot of work to be done. <laughs> Perhaps we, yeah. we can uh, <laughs> uh, continue this conversation a few years down the line or so. But <laughs> for today, I think we are, we are running out of time. So I wish to round up this episode at this point. Um, and I'm very grateful for you being on and sharing your expertise. Maybe one more short question. Um, if people listening were interested in what you're doing and wish to get in contact with you, how can they most easily do that? Well, uh, I think they can. Uh, yeah, if some of uh, our audience are interested in my research, you can visit my, my website or just shoot me an email. I think, Robin, you can put my email and my website at the show notes. Yeah, exactly. Sure. Yeah. Okay, I will do that then. And again, I appreciate that you've been my final guest. This has been my last episode for delving into Asian psyches. And I've been grateful for everyone who tuned in and yeah. hope I managed to contribute to a better understanding of the subject that I and Chuan Peng love. Yeah, thank mm. you. Yeah, one last advertisement. So for international students, master students or PhD students, if you are interested in doing a PhD or master degree in uh, with me together, you can always apply. I think the Chinese government have uh, fundings for international students as well. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> Thank Great you, plug. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> sure, go ahead, because this podcast has been a, a production for the Gen A Fellowship at Asia Society Switzerland, which is an organization that uh, enhances East and West conversation here in Zurich. And please wish me luck to get selected for a slot at State of Asia. It's the flagship conference of the organization taking place in Zurich later this year. And if you are here and wish to hear more from experts from Asia, why not consider attending and we might see each other there. And for all others, I highly value your time and attention on this format. Now that there's nothing left to say, but thank you for listening. And I wish you continue to have a wonderful time. Bye bye. <laughs>